0: This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. The Pillars of Biblical Literacy. We are diving into a new series here on Enacting the Kingdom where we are delving into the scriptures. So, so far, we talk a lot about liturgies. We've done a season on the liturgies of life. We've done a season on Vespers, the baptismal services. But a lot of these services, Father Jeffrey, are built around the scriptures or or the scriptures act as the source material for a lot of the liturgy. Uh, it's, It's often said that when you come to church, all it is, is the scriptures rearranged, Uh, If you're very familiar with the scriptures and you come to a service, you're going to hear it all over the place. And it's not just with the scripture readings, is it, Father Jeffrey? There's like all these small little psalm verses. Even some of the hymns that are composed much later in church history are informed by the language and the phrasing um, and the themes of biblical literature. So I thought, why not do a little season on biblical literacy. And you know what I hope Father Jeffrey for our listeners is that you can start reading the scriptures, not in a way that just keeps you in private, you know, reading just me and the Bible, but a way of reading the scriptures, understanding the themes and having a cup, just a couple of tools to use so that some of the words can now jump off the page. But then not just jump off the page in your imagination, but actually inform how you experience liturgy, and then ultimately how you bring that liturgy into your everyday life.
1: Yeah, it's an excellent idea, and of course, you know that relationship that you've you know talked about the uh, of our worship, our liturgy is is basically scripture rearranged, you know, for for worship in, in that sense. I mean, it, it's really just one big tapestry, right? Because the as we'll see, as we talk about the scriptures themselves they come out of a kind of community worship in the first place, right? So it's not that there was this thing that was delivered, you know, for once and for all, and we've taken that as our pattern book or our source book for the way we worship. In fact, it was the community of faith through the ages, worshiping, experiencing God, you know, working through wrestling with the big questions, writing that down, you know, having, transmitted those stories orally, you know, for some time. And you know, it's one as I say, one big tapestry of, of worship and and of of scripture. And you know, you can't you can't tell sometimes where one begins and where and where the other ends, right? So it's I think absolutely in keeping with a series on liturgy to to talk about the scriptures, because of course it captures so much of what uh, our, our experience of God in worship and communal worship is all about.
0: There's a wonderful podcast called Bible project or the Bible project, and they cover a lot of material uh, vis-a-vis the Bible. They're called the Bible project. They have videos on YouTube, which are wonderful. They have a podcast and they actually have a series called the, um, the paradigm series and it's about picking out those major themes or major things you need to know to read the bible kind of appropriately or what 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 is the bible doing what is the bible and how do you approach it and they come up with several of these uh, p- what they call pillars and what i what i don't want to do in this series is just to cover the same material that they did because you know i want you to after you've done listen, listening to this podcast, go subscribe there and listen to that paradigm series uh, from the Bible Project because they get into the nitty gritty of it. What I would like to do is to look at some of the pillars that they put forward for, um, uh, the, for a biblical paradigm and then uh, see how that affects us as Orthodox Christians because they're not Orthodox Christians. They come from more of an evangelical background. But a lot of what they're saying uh, is in line with how an Orthodox person would view the scriptures so if that's okay with you father jeffrey maybe in this first episode here i'll throw three of them at you and we can uh i'll talk a little bit about how they talk about it and then maybe we could comment on it and contextualize it more for uh us orthodox christians yes
1: absolutely and and just for perfect clarity for our listeners i have not listened to the bible project uh podcast so i'll take your word on what they've said and we can carry our conversation forward from there
0: Wonderful. I've listened many times, so I've listened enough for the both of us. (laughs) Very good. The first one that they bring up is that the Bible is divine and human literature. That the Bible is divine and human literature. And I think often when we think of the, the Bible... The, we might even be familiar with certain kinds of debates. Like, what does it mean that the Bible is inspired by God, right? Did um, did God take control of the Apostle Paul and use him as a puppet? And then Paul writes these words, but really it's not Paul writing, it's just God writing. And then those are the letters of Paul that we have in the Bible. Or did Paul write and make mistakes and um, maybe even screw things up. But, you know, the Holy Spirit maybe somehow in an inexplicable way kind of works through that. And those are kind of the two sides of the spectrum, I think, um, if we're to understand what divine inspiration is. So that the Bible is a divine and human book. It also reminds me, and they talk a little bit about this in the podcast of, um, well, they don't use this word, but the hypostatic union, uh, the, the union of the divine and the human in the person of Christ right? And that Jesus Christ himself is where the divine and the human truly come together, but that the Holy Spirit, uh, that, that the the Holy scriptures is, uh, they are um, God-breathed, as I think Paul uh, Paul, that's the phrase that Paul uses, that they are God-breathed. So I guess, how do we understand that the scriptures are divine and human literature? Because there are we see them as important, as scripture, as divine. That this is somehow God talking to us. But on the other hand, it's also written by people. And there are uh, those, there's humanness about the text as well, right? It didn't just fall down from heaven. So yeah, how do we handle that as Orthodox Christians?
1: Yeah, no, all of that is really, really important to, to keep in mind. Um, but I, I would suggest that we take one step backwards from that, before we have the Bible as a thing, the scriptures as a thing, I mean, the Bible, first of all, has to be understood as a collective noun, mm-hmm. and not a not a singular, right? It, it, in Greek, means the books, right? It's the, it's a library. It's not one thing. But before it even becomes the one library, it's something else. And it's, it's an experience of God, right? It's a community of faith that has, as I said just a few moments ago, in its worship, in its spiritual experience, it comes to know who God is, right? And if we look at that before we look at the actual writings, because the writings take some time to come along and then they get redacted and transmitted and compiled and sometimes rewritten, Um and, you know, this is a process that takes, you know, thousands of years. But before it's any of that, it's this thing where it is both divine and human in this sense. And that is that God is somehow choosing, risking, you could almost say, his purposes, his project on collaboration with human beings. Right? I mean the the all powerful, all knowing one who has existed from before all time, who brought everything from non existence into being, has decided, for whatever reason, and that's part of what the Bible asks us to think about. Right, has decided to to risk this all on human beings effecting his purposes for creation. Right. And, and this begins and is, is told all through the story of the scriptures that he could do, you know, X, Y or Z, but chooses instead to work in and through human beings. And so in that regard, the entire, you know, uh, scope of reality, the whole fabric of creation is divine and human. Right. So it's not just that the scriptures have this character or that they somehow mirror, you know, the the union of the divine and human in Jesus Christ. And, you know, we'll come to talk about how Jesus fits into all of this, because what what ends up happening as soon as God risks it all on collaboration with human beings, it creates an expectation that somehow this will be possible. Right. And so the Jesus Christ you know, as the one who comes to respond to that expectation becomes central to the whole story of the scriptures. But I just wanted our listeners to understand in the first instance that it's not that here's unique amongst all the books you could go and find in a library or in a bookshop. This one has divine and human characteristics and you'll we'll talk about it that way. No, the, the whole structure of reality is divine and human in that regard, right? And that's what these writings compiled by people of faith over thousands of years, invite us to enter into and to understand and to participate in, right? That, that God wants human beings to collaborate with him in order to do what he wants to do with all of reality, right? And so in that regard, what we have in the scriptures are the, the, the kind of written accounts of a struggle for people to do just that. Right? So we don't find you know, the how-to, right? We don't find the you know the perfect expression of God's will in all times and places. We find an interpretation of it. We find an imagination of it. We find a contextually based understanding of what that is. But what we have always and everywhere is God's Purposes and human beings invited to come in to share in those and to take those forward. And, um, and in that respect, everything about the scriptures is both divine and, and human. And it, I wonder, I mean, you mentioned the kind of origins of the, you know, Bible project and everything. I wonder if there would be a slight nuance in our understanding, you know, of that, because I think the, an evangelical would tend to, to think that there is a certain sense in which not dictation, but there's a sense in which the inspiration that we that would be kind of uh, assigned or uh, you know associated with with the scriptures, there is a kind of you know almost unmediated divine voice at work. You know that there are things in, that you can kind of point to and say, well, here you know we have the unvarnished word of Yahweh himself, you know, or, you know, here we have like this completely objective, you know, take, you know, on things I think as you know, those who have, you know, maybe part of the more historic tradition of the church, a church that in our case, we date from, you know, the call of Abraham. So we're talking about the whole of that community of faith from, from the beginning, you know, until now, there's an understanding that the community has played, you know, an absolutely central role in, passing down these stories these traditions writing them down as i say redacting rewriting rethinking reimagining you know at all times in 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 that journey of faith and and so forth to the point that it's very hard to actually say you know this is you know absolutely god's voice and there's no human interference with it right so you know risk taking is god that every single word actually carries that forward, right? So when we say divine and human, we're not saying, well, here, here are parts that, well, that's God. And then here's these other parts. Well, that's obviously fallen humanity that's kind of interfered with it. Now, the entire thing is this, you know, can, cannot be abstracted from the need of, you know, for us to, to kind of struggle and wrestle and make sense of. And I mean, the encouraging part of this is that, you know, as our listeners Go and read their, their Bibles and they see, well, this just doesn't make sense. Or how can God be like this? If he's like this over here, this seems to contradict it. And, you know, surely this, this God seems very petty at times, very vindictive or whatever. All the things that kind of become obstacles, you know, for us to understand that it's always and everywhere been this thing that God has risked on human beings getting right. And more often than not, we've not. And the whole story of the Bible is human beings haven't held up that part of the bargain, which is, as I say, why there's this almost immediate sense in which God's going to have to do something about that too, right? And maybe that was the plan all along, right, to create this expectation that for this divine and human project to be fulfilled, it's going to take one who is properly divine and perfect human at the same time. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's a helpful way of thinking because we're kind of abstracted a little bit from the texts themselves, but to see the whole thing, the whole of reality as divine and human, I think is, it has to be our starting point. And then, of course, within that, you know, the Bible takes a kind of central place, but in no way, you know, is it capable of giving us something that doesn't need us to continue to do what God asked us to do in the first place, which is collaborate with him as a community in order to take his purposes forward.
0: If you haven't yet become a patron of Enacting the Kingdom over on Patreon, you're only getting a small fraction of everything we're up to. When you become a patron, for as little as three dollars a month, you'll get immediate access to over 100 Patreon-exclusive episodes, weekly new releases, private live streams, and Patreon community events like Bible studies. And as we're social media free, Patreon is the only place to engage with us and others about these episodes. Go to patreon.com/enactingthekingdom to join the growing community. That word collaboration, I think, is really important that the Bible, if I were to maybe condense everything there, the Bible is perhaps um, witnesses to uh, or is a is an icon of the collaboration between God and creation. Um, And that's what we're supposed to be in ourselves as well. Um, But let's let's dive to the next one, because we will come back to all these topics later throughout the series. The next pillar that uh, they have here is uh, that the Bible's unified literature. Now, this one's very fascinating because in today's world, you can go to the bookstore and you can buy the Bible, right? It has a cover on the front, a cover on the back, pages in between. You can quote unquote read the book. The, you can read the Bible quote unquote cover to cover. Uh, but for much of Christian history, well, for parts of Christian history, we didn't even have what was called quote unquote the Bible. And for much of Christian history, the Bible was not codified in that kind of a way. Um, as, uh, you know, in our, in our Orthodox tradition, even, you know, if you think of Constantinople, that the, uh, the, the church that was being, um, the church there for the first thousand years or so, a, a lot of the books would be separated d- different liturgical books. Like you had the, uh, the, the prophet's book, the, the prophetologion, which had the readings from the old Testament split up by lectionary, um, pericopes and readings. Um, so, as you mentioned before it's it 's a library it 's a scriptural library that isn 't necessarily just between two covers, even though we think of it that like that nowadays. So, what do we i guess mean by unified literature when all these books actually come from many different places, and you had mentioned earlier in the episode that sometimes it seems that there 's even contradictions between the text so what is that unified literature
1: yeah so i mean maybe just to re-emphasize what you're saying in terms of the diversity in in the first place we have you know books that are completely different genres we have books from completely different times and places uh, and and it's not even thinking of them in terms of well this book comes from here and this one comes from here the books themselves are pastiches they're they're compilations and redactions of, of all kinds of traditions and you can i mean scholars today take great delight in in kind of unpacking you know some of of those traditions and so forth i'm not sure in the, at the end of the day how useful a process you know that is but it it at least highlights to us just how diverse all of this literature you know is and you know it's not all of the same value I and mean, this is again part of this thing we're talking about divine and human just because we've we've put this you know, kind of label on this library doesn't mean that. Oh, now I have to care as much about this as about this, right? And the church has never done that. You, you're you're mentioned about the way that these get used liturgically. Well, that's really formed the way we think about, you know, what they they even are. And the psalter, you know, is used every single day of the church year right we 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 use that we pray out of that uh you know it has become foundational to to worship and and that was the case thousands of years ago as much as it is you know today the gospels take pride of praise place in the christian church and you know are bound together and those are placed on the holy table right and just the gospels right as though you know they Exist separately from, from the rest of, of this library, which of course they ultimately, you know, don't. But all of these things, you know, create this sense of, of utter diversity and so forth. But the unifying factor here is the ultimately you know what we might say as the the capital A author um, and the, the capital P protagonist. You know who is God Himself, right? Who who is the one who is the subject and object of the entire story from from beginning to end. And uh, that word story is important because you know at least half of all of the material anyway is just pure narrative, right? Um, it's going to be another huge. Proportion that that's poetry, right? Which has another kind of lit- literary quality to it in terms of symbolism and and imagery and and, and so forth. And and a, a very little of it is is kind of what you call more discursive, right? Um, you know, propositional, persuasive, you know, uh, legal, and other kinds of, of literature. So in, in all that diversity, there is one subject, one object, and the it's that story of you know from creation to to new creation to the fulfillment of all things god's purposes that go forward and how that gets you know enacted and effected through through human history that becomes the the, the kind of golden thread that runs right through all of this so whether you're reading about bizarre ritual purity laws in Leviticus or you're reading the struggles of the psalmist or you're reading, you know, prophetic invective from the eighth century, you know, in, in Israel or you're reading, you know, the story of, you know, unfaithful kings or whether you're reading the gospels or the letters of St. Paul. There is one main narrative, right? It's the story of how God created all things invites creation to be part of his ultimate plans and, you know, what his character is, what his nature is, and how we know that through the way he has interacted with and is drawing all things towards his purposes, right? So that's the, the ultimate story that governs all of this literature, whether it's, let you know, even strange genealogy lists and and, and whatnot stories that make no sense to us because clearly the context is so far removed, you know, from us today. But the, the golden thread here is God himself and what he is intending and how he has always and everywhere, as I said before, risked this project on us, right? Inviting us in. The one who could have just gone ahead and done it, but what that might have done, for us, I'm not sure, you know, these are what ifs. But I mean, he ha- this is his character to invite us into that program, into that project, and and that is what everything is about, right? And so, in that sense, we can read all of the the, the literature together, and we can allow one part or one. S- You know, aspect of the collection to, to inform our understanding of another. This is kind of reading, you know, within the texts themselves, allowing scripture to interpret scripture, which is what the church and church fathers and the liturgy has always done, right? So we make sense of this part by this other part, by this later uh, revelation, by this later experience of the community of faith and so forth. So the unity, you know, is, is God himself. And then it's our own entering into that relationship with God that invites us to make these connections and to say that you know from the call of abraham to today there has been a com- consistent community of people who seek this true god who seek to have relationship with him who seek to follow his uh, covenant expectations and to receive his covenant promises and faithfulness and that unity as well is reflected in the way that we approach you know the scripture so you may find that everything about it screams diversity but God himself and our own entering into relationship with God create that kind of sense of a unified um, literature. That's not to say there aren't struggles at times to sort of say, hang on, I've come across this verse or this chapter and it makes no sense. How does it even begin to fit in with the rest? And in that lies, you know, a very interesting process of, of, of wrestling, of struggle, of, 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 of contemplation and so forth. But I think we'll get to that point a little bit later.
0: If you are getting value from this podcast, please consider writing a short, positive five star review on your podcast app. And even though we are social media free, there is still a place you can keep up to date with Enacting the Kingdom. You can join the email list by going to enactingthekingdom.com. You know, related to that unified literature aspect or pillar, uh, we also have that the, the Bible is messianic literature, right? That the Bible. Uh, if I were to put it into my own words, that the, the texts that exist within this library seem to be concerned with some sort of figure or person that's going to come and set things to rights. Now, It's shadowy in certain parts. Exactly, what does that look like, right? Um, You know, we have the story in the very beginning with Genesis, where um, the the two uh, mud creatures, the two Earthlings, Adam and Eve, uh, they they sin, and um, you know, God says that uh, the there will be an offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the snake, but the snake will bite his heel right? And, and you're sort of expecting, okay, who is this offspring? Now, is it all of her offspring or is it a singular offspring, right? Just like the word offspring in English could mean all of the children of Eve, or it could be one as well. It could be singular. Um, And then we think of, you know, uh, Abraham and Sarah, who are very concerned with the child of the promise. Uh y- You have... Moses, who talks about the uh, I, God will raise up a prophet like me, right? Listen, you have to listen to him, uh, and then you have David, and God says to David, if you will remain faithful, if your children will remain faithful, I will raise up um, a son to sit upon your th- your throne and to rule as king in in Israel. Um, and then we have in Isaiah who talks about the suffering servant, one who will come and, and suffer on behalf of the people. So we have all these kind of maybe not fully formed uh ideas of of messiah or this figure that's going to come and set things to rights and i I suppose that's one way that these texts are unified isn't it father jeffrey
1: absolutely and as you pointed out and giving those examples i mean this is from the very beginning pages of of the scriptures the opening of of the torah creates this this sense of expectation it's really the the flip side of what i was saying in terms of this divine and human cooperation that god's Purposes, which are ultimately summed up in, you know, words like shalom. You know, this kind of total peace and right relationship between God and human beings and creation. So, and His righteousness, His holiness, His His perfection, His, you know, all of this. Is meant to come into play for all of creation, but through the uh, the work of human beings. That God is trusting us, you know, to do that. Well, we fail from the very beginning. If there's if that story of the first human beings in in Genesis means anything, it means that we've kind of shirked our responsibility, rebelled against God. God wants us to co- co- cooperate and collaborate with Him. But instead, we turn our backs on Him, and the result of that is, as you said, this this you know. Expectation that one day something's going to come to, to kind of make this right. And that this offspring, as you say, will, will, will crush the serpent, but whose, whose own heel will be, will be bitten. But, you know, maybe even, you know, the, the next example you gave uh, about Moses, um, is interesting because here, and, and really the, you know, the, the, the whole of the Torah is about Moses, right? I mean, from, from beginning to end, we call these the books of Moses and, you know, the whole thing practically, you know, is, comes together, coalesces as, as a story. And this is, of course, the central story in in Judaism um, as well around this figure of Moses and really in, you know, before Jesus Christ, the figure who comes closest to, to kind of representing this divine and human collaboration is Moses, right? There are times when Moses is speaking and you're not clear whether that's Moses or whether that's Yahweh himself, you know? Um, you know, it, it's even, it's unclear in the whole Exodus account, you know, God says, I plan to bring my people out of Egypt. And then, you know, Moses talks about his plan to bring the people you know, out of Egypt, and God even says that to Moses, "Your your people," and so forth. And by my right hand being raised, they'll, you know, Pharaoh will be, you know, crushed, and the people will be delivered. Well, it's Moses' hands that go up. So, if anybody came closest to doing this, so he's still fallen. He's still sinful. He's still rebellious. He's still very human, indeed. But he comes the closest, as I say, to showing what might be possible with divine and human you know cooperation i mean it's moses who ascends the mountain moses who's able to have this this kind of full on experience of who god is still can't see god's face mind you but you know it's moses that receives the covenant and and the laws who comes down his face you know just shining with that you know divine presence and and so forth and interestingly the church fathers make a lot about this um you know there are books about theosis that that talk about the life of moses right um so i'm not making this up is what i'm saying so but even then right because of these failures because the, the project doesn't go fully forward to its, you know, consummation. Moses comes down from the mountain. What does he find? You know, the people are already worshipping a golden calf, having basically broken the first two commandments on the tablets. And, you know, he throws his arms up in frustration, breaks the tablets, and and the rest is, is history, as it were. But out of that, obviously, comes the expectation of, well, can there be a, a one greater than Moses, right? Could there be Someone who's actually able to fulfill this expectation and, and invitation that God has that human beings share in his divine life and take his purposes forward, his purposes for, for peace and, and reconciliation and righteousness and, and wholeness and, and so forth. That, that totality of what creation is meant to be. And that is that messianic expectation. And it gets written you know, as you say, into the, into the stories of the kings and, and well, if there can be a king like David who comes the closest, maybe amongst all the kings uh of being one who's willing to kind of take God's project forward and yet himself a murderer and an adulterer, right? I mean, so it just, could there be a greater king than David? You know, could there be a greater prophet, you know, than Moses? Could there be, uh, you know, what about the, the the kind of worship of of israel you know the 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 whole of the the Torah leads forward from from creation through to the the kind of central moment in the torah is the the, the tabernacle right that place where god's presence comes to dwell where heaven and earth are joined well could there be a way of making that worship, that self-sacrificing worship of God permanent, because it's temporary. It's imperfect. Even as that that's being set up, some of the priests and high priests get destroyed because they, their worship is not wholehearted, right? The same way that we saw from the very beginning with Adam and Eve's failure to, to worship properly and then Cain's uh, you know, sacrifice not being accepted like Abel's was and so forth. So this is an ongoing theme as well. So all of these things, whether you're looking at kingship or prophecy or priesthood, all of the aspects of of, of Israel's call to be a covenant people, they fall short. It's God seeking people to co- co- cooperate, collaborate with him, seeking human beings to enter into this relationship to achieve his purposes for all of creation. And yet again and again and again, the failure is just written large on the pages. And so the, the messianic expectation is like this. It's almost like this negative, right? It's, a, it's the vacuum. It's the, the, the void that's left by the Israel's inability to fulfill what God has invited Israel to do in relationship you know, with him. And so it's yes, it's shadowy indeed, because is it all of Israel? Is it a particular king? Is it a particular prophet? Who is it going to be? But someone has to come and and sort this out. And then by the time, you know, obviously, all those things are lost, the land, the king, the temple, and the people themselves go into exile which is where most of the scriptures actually coalesce where most of those stories finally get put down and committed to the form that we have them it's in a time amongst the people who are suffering in exile being st- stripped of all of those things which they thought they were taking in the right direction right and so there that, that that kind of expectation reaches a kind of fever you know pitch and you get you know the even the apocalyptic expectations of well you know, if anybody's going to sort this out, it's got to be God himself we will have the Yom Yahweh, the the day of the Lord, and and God himself will somehow intervene. What might that look like? Well, for some of the prophets, it's glorious. You know, Isaiah has these beautiful images of what that might look like. For other prophets, it's, it's quite dark and stark indeed. I don't, it don't look for this day right you're not gonna you're not gonna like this but in any case god himself will somehow play a role in intervening definitively in in human history and of course that's the matrix that's the womb in which our lord jesus christ our lord jesus christ jesus the messiah makes his appearance in that first century right so it's it's nobody knows but but they all know that something has to happen right and at, by that point the exile has gone on so long yes some came back but where they came back to oppression under persians and greeks and then romans and the exile needs a new Exodus. So it needs that new Moses. And the the throne is occupied by pretenders. Nobody in the, the line of David is there. So we need the new David, right? The temple is compromised. It Yes, there's been a temple that's been rebuilt, but God's presence never came to it. Not like it did in the tabernacle. Not like it even did by sort of concession to Solomon in his first temple. So all of that needs resolved. And that becomes... As I say, the matrix or the womb in which our Lord Jesus comes onto the stage and all of what we find in the gospels responds to that. You go back again now and look at the gospels, you'll see that, you know, every prophetic action, every healing word, every teaching that comes out of his mouth reflects one or another of these aspects of, of expectation created by this original invitation for God to for human beings to participate in his project his plans for all of the world and now finally we have the one who turns out God himself has walked onto the stage. The author has entered his own play, right? Or that the playwright has entered his own play, the author has entered his own um, novel and plays that major role to fulfill that which he had invited us to do in the first play.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of our first half of the introduction of the series, How to Read the Bible, the Pillars of Biblical Literacy. We're going to be looking at a few more in our next episode. And uh, I look forward to beginning this journey with you, Father Jeffrey. So do I. It's going to be a fun series, I think. Absolutely. We'll, we'll see you soon, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. And I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.